welcome to the Book of Mormon Evidence podcast with host Rod Meldrum. This week's Come Follow Me supplemental study is Lesson 45, Ether 6-11, through 11, That Evil May Be Done Away. In this episode, Rod welcomes back Paul Horbath, the metallurgy expert. They continue with the discussion on metals. Then Rod shares an interesting story about a protester that posed a question that stumped him, and then how he actually found an answer. This episode might just test your metal in knowledge of the Book of Mormon. Welcome back, everybody. This is Rod Meldrum. Uh, today we have with us, uh, we have Paul Horvath, my dear friend from Indiana. He is a metallurgist that worked for General Motors, and I want I have a little story to tell about this. This actually goes back to um, a time when it's actually at, in, at the Manti Pageant. Okay. Manti, Utah, they have this pageant there on the, on the hill where the temple is located. And it's kind of mm-hmm. like the Hill Kimura Pageant. And, uh, and, and they have, and, and, and like the Hill Kimura Pageant, it too also uh, attracts uh, anti-Mormons. <laughs> you know, but, and so I, w- I was walking up towards the uh, the pageant area, and they had this whole area basically where they had all the anti-Mormons could kind of be there and harass people and so forth. And so as I was walking past, a couple of the anti-Mormon guys recognized me and said, hey, Meldrum, hey, Mel- Rod Meldrum, come, come over here, come over here. I'm like, okay, here we go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, so I walked up, and this guy had this little red wagon. And this and this wagon basically had uh, had a set of gold plates. They're not they weren't gold plates. They were just they were just metal plates. Okay, and he had the rings around them, kind of like these right here. Oh man, I'm telling you. Oh my gosh, that was so heavy. <laughs> so they had basically like this, and the guy had 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 uh, ring, rigged them up with the with the rings here, and he and he was challenging people to pick up those plates and run with them like old Joe Smith did, right? Well, I'm a pretty good-sized guy. I'm 6'3", about 250, okay, so forth. So I'm like, all right, I'm up to the challenge. Plus, I grew up on a farm, so I, I was used to bucking <laughs> hay bales and stuff. <laughs> so, so I grab onto this thing and sling it up over my shoulder and, uh, and, and kind of take off kind of running. And he's going, oh, okay, 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 okay. He said, well, come back, come back, come back. And so I came back and put him back in this, in this little red wagon. I said, and, and he said, well, he says, but you're a big guy. And I said, and so was Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith was a big guy. He, by, by the accounts, he was about six foot three. I can tell you, anybody who could actually stick pull like he could stick pull wasn't a skinny guy. Okay, he was. A, he had a little bit pesante. And in fact, later on in, in the Nauvoo period, there was one, one account of him that said he was a bit portly, which means he was a thick guy, right? Well, anyway, so so the guy says, well, okay, so you could, so yeah, you could, yeah, okay, so you could pick those up and you could carry them and so forth like Joseph Smith did. Uh, he says, but I have one. I, I have one that you can't answer. I said, okay, what's that? He says, well, according to the record, your plates basically the gold plates were approximately six inches by six inches by eight inches, right? And he says, and two thirds it was sealed, right? I go, yeah, that's true. So that's that. This shows the two thirds sealed. So about four inches of the six inches of plates was sealed. And then you had about the two inches up at the top. He says, if there's only two inches worth of plates that, that, that could actually be accessed, and if those plates were a sixteenth of an inch thick, then you could only get about 16 plates maximum per inch. So you can only get 32 plates 
which only gives you 64 surfaces. Sixteenth of an inch is way thick. Okay, yeah, it is, it is. Okay, and, and, I, and I said, okay. Um, so it, he said, so you're telling me that you could get 16, or 500 pages of typeset English on 64 surfaces? Mm-hmm. And I went, um, hmm. Yeah, because I mean, I, I'm not a linguist by any stretch of imagination, but I don't know of any language that is so condensed that that would that that ratio would make sense. And so I said, "Well, you're right. I don't have an answer for that right at the moment in time, but I know there's going to be an answer. I just don't know what it is right now." And, it's, and he said, "Well, I respect that." And I said, "Well, okay, because because you know the bottom line is is that I could pick up those plates." Also, uh, a couple of things about the plates themselves, brothers and sisters, and that is that the, the actual plates, according to the historical records, um, there, were, there were different people who actually held the plates and, and saw them, There's the witnesses, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple other people who actually held the plates, and, but not on purpose. Okay, And then, for, for example, Emma, um, she had to move the plates around when she was cleaning. She said that they made a metallic rustle when she did that. Um, I have a, a dear friend of mine. In fact, he's the one that actually made these, this set of plates for me here. Um, he was asked by the church. His name is Stephen Glenn. He actually passed away about uh, about six months ago. Dear friend of mine. I'm just really sad that he had that he uh, passed away. But he had Mormon art and bronze, and basically, so he was asked by the church to make a set of plates as accurate as possible, but without using real gold. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And he said, well, how, how should I make it? He said, well, here's all the accounts that we have of the eyewitness accounts. So use those as your foundations and then figure it out kind of from there. Well, he started buying some brass. He thought, well, what, the, the closest thing I can get that's a decent price or whatever is brass. So one of the first things he got was that this, this is about 75 thousandths of an inch thick, I think, somewhere around there. So mm-hmm. it's not quite a sixteenth of an inch, but pretty close. This is a sixteenth of an inch. And folks, let me tell you, there's, you're not bending that. I mean, you could bend it. I, I could physically bend it, but it wouldn't be like the the plates that actually were. A couple of other qualifications that had to be um, thick enough so that it could be written on on both sides without bleeding through. If you get it too thin, like foil, if you scribed on one side of it, it would bleed through the other side. That wouldn't or, work. Or it would rip. Or it could rip, yes. So it has to be thick enough so that they could write on both sides, but thin enough so it would actually be bendable. So this is another piece here. Uh, this is a little bit thinner, and, it, and you can do it, but and you could actually go on both sides of that one here. But my, but my friend Steve Glenn was doing this research to trying to find out how thick of brass should he do to make a full set of plates like this. Um, he got some five thousandths of an inch, which is basically foil sheet of paper. Okay. Yeah, a sheet of paper, thicker, little, a little thicker than a sheet of paper, and uh, and that one easily just bled through. You you you, you couldn't use that. But he got this piece. Uh, this is actually one of the pieces here. This is twelve thousandths of an inch, so it's about uh, little, little, about two and a half times as thick as a, as a piece of paper. Um, but interestingly enough, very flexible, very easy. But actually, it's inscribed on this side, and it doesn't bleed through to this side. Okay. And so he came to the conclusion that somewhere around twelve thousandths of an inch would be the optimum thickness for a plate to be able to be used, to be written on both sides, and then be able to actually do this, okay? And so uh, so he was talking to me. We, we were actually in the same ward. <laughs> so so we were actually in high priest group one one Sunday. <laughs> he said, and he said, Rod, he says, you know, this is, I, I've been asked to do this for the church. And he says, I think I found the right metal size. He says, but 
But uh, she says, I, I would like to know, though, is there any archaeological evidence that people could even make a, a, a sheet of metal that thin? And I said, well, goodness gracious, I just happen <laughs> to have this artifact that came from uh, Michigan, and it's made out of copper, and it is a little copper scroll. They said, well, how thick is it? I said, I don't know. I've never put a micrometer on it, so I don't know. They said, listen, let's get out of here right now. We'll go down there to my shop. And I got a micrometer. <laughs> and I said, no, no, let's wait until after High Priest is over. <laughs> so we did. <laughs> so we waited until High Priest group. We did. Okay, honest, honest folks, we did wait until High Priest group was over. And then we immediately jumped into cars and ran down to his office. was not there, far from there. I went to my house and picked up the, uh, the, the copper scroll here. And we proceeded to take a micrometer and, and we measured we were able to get three measurements on this thing every single one of those measurements was twelve thousandths of an inch exactly the same size as this and if you take a look at the edges of this and this you can kind of see the edge of that and you see the edge of this and so let me tell you folks if i ever have an opportunity to go back down to manti which there won't be because it's now been canceled but if I ever see any anti-Mormons, and I hope there may be some anti-Mormon or somebody who's having questions about the Book of Mormon is watching this, this podcast right now, let me tell you how this really comes down. So the bottom line is, is that now, not only do we know about the approximate size or thickness of the plates and what they were, we know that the ancient mound builder people actually had the capability of taking copper and making copper plates um, of that exact thickness. And we have the actual physical evidence for that. Um, people say, well, what about gold? Gold is actually e easier to work than copper. Is. Yeah, gold is more malleable. But, but you see, something else you need to understand is that lots of times when you're taking copper or any kind of metal, and you're going to probably pound it mm -hmm. thinner and thinner until you have a plate, um, that work hardens the material. So, so it the would, more you pound it, the more you pound it. You know, so if you take a piece of steel and you pound it with a ball peen hammer, it will turn into a, a convex shape. That's yeah. what happens. Yeah. But you would pound this, and it would also get a little harder as you did it, and that would assist in being able to engrave it. So twelve thousandths is probably right. This was obviously not pounded flat. Yeah, it was probably rolled flat, yeah. and there's a difference. Yeah, yeah. there's a difference. Yeah, but but but, the, the, but I guess the main thing, if I ever saw that guy again with that thing, I, and, and he asked me that same question, <laughs> yeah, I get it. because this is where it comes down to, folks. Check this out. So if you take this, which is the you know the, the plates here, and then you take this plate basically, now how many plates can you fit into two inches? Oh, twelve thousandths of a shot. <laughs> See, he's doing the math. He's, a, he's an engineer. <laughs> But just so you know, those of us who aren't engineers, we wouldn't even attempt that kind of kind of, kind of <laughs> Well, I started to think it out, but I didn't get there. But anyway, it basically works out to about 256 surfaces. Yeah. So it's about uh, you know, so about 125 plates in a condensed language. Yeah. So about 75 plates per inch, and then times two inches, and that gives you about 256 surfaces. Now that is still a condensed language compared to 500 pages of type C in English, but at least it's in the realm of possibility now. Yeah, yeah. I have a I have a friend that says that the the texting language we we use now, like you are, 
yeah, da, da, da. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the reformed Egyptian. It's the it's the likeness of what we're using. That's today. right. That's right. <laughs> so I, I I just love that story, and it's one that I, I haven't had a chance to tell very often because it's kind of a long story and and so forth. But but basically, I just wanted to point out to folks, brothers and sisters, if you think that there's not answers for something, the answers are there. The Book of Mormon is absolutely true, and 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 the evidence is going to come. And we may not have all of the evidence now, but right now, I get—I honestly believe that we now have about as much, in fact, probably maybe even more evidence for yeah. the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon as they have for the Bible. You know, Rod, as when, we have for the Bible. When when I joined the church in 1973 as a new convert, I can remember reading some of the church newses, the first ones we've got, and things happened, and and I can remember, and I cannot recall who or where I read it, but mm-hmm. one of, someone had said that the days would come when the evidence would be so profound that the Book of Mormon was true that you'd have to be intellectually dishonest to ignore it. Yeah. And I remember that, you know, and I think this carries off into this message. The Book of Mormon is true, and now the evidence has come forward that's extremely powerful. Absolutely. And then and, and sometimes you have to go back to the earliest accounts of the people that first came into these areas because, you know, a lot of the areas have been farmed now for, you know, 150 years, 200 years, or even three or 400 years in some cases. Um, and so let me go back to a couple of uh, images here that I want to just uh, point out here for you guys. So this is, the, this is showing some of the knives and scrapers and so forth, which, by the way, I have with me. Let me, let me just show you some of these metal, um, metal artifacts here. So these are, again, artifacts. This is from the, the Keweenaw Peninsula area up in Michigan. This is a metal scraper. This is the actual one that you'll see in the book, okay, in, in the, uh, the uh, Exploring the Book of Mormon in America's Heartland. Uh, here are some additional ones. Now, this one is a really interesting one as well, okay? This one is a, a little, right here on this side over here, is a little amulet made out of copper, and it's actually got a hole drilled in it. You can okay. see where they yep. could actually take a, a piece of basically string and go through that. There is a, a, a spearhead here. There's a bead here. This one is an interesting one. That is basically it's a piece of copper, but this one again has been overlaid by silver. So they've been able to take the silver and smelt it onto the copper, which I'm not sure exactly how, that, how they do that. Um, let's see, there's a couple other artifacts here I wanted to show you guys. Uh, this is also in the book. You can actually see this one on... Um, uh, let's see here, the other page. Yeah, this is at the top of this page here. Okay, but this is the this is a knife. You can actually see the tang end of it here, and then the knife there. And again, this is the ancient copper artifacts here. Um, and then this one here. This this is not in the book. This is one that I I, I got uh, later on, but this is actually was discovered just about uh, four years ago. Um, it's an actual entire necklace set. Oh. So you can see each of the copper beads, and they actually graduate from larger beads down to smaller beads. So it kind of, kind of would have graduated up on the, on the string here. Uh, this is a, a rolled copper. It's basically that, that thin copper just like the scroll, but it's rolled around into making a hollow bead of copper. And then these are two amulets that were also part of that necklace set. So somebody died or lost their necklace set there, and then this was just discovered here about four years ago. Up in Michigan. All right. Um, just to, while, we're, while we're while we're showing that real quickly, I'm just going to go ahead and show you just a couple of these real fast. So these are just a, a more more copper 
arrowheads. I mean, there's so many of them. You can go on eBay and you can you can buy these these things. Um, that sometimes they're hard. These have nice provenance, provenance, meaning that they know where they came from mm-hmm. and who dug them up and who owned them and so forth. Um, on eBay, it's hard to tell, you know, what's going on there. But these are these are awls basically for punching holes in things. Uh, this is a this is a nice little scraper here and a, another. Um, this is a uh, a bead of some sort. It's got it's hollow on the inside, and a spear spear or arrow tip, and again more spear tips and arrowheads and awls and anyway, there's just all kinds of stuff. They had they had all kinds of uh, metalworking capability here. All right, so I just wanted to show you those items here. We're gonna get into those in just a minute. Okay, now back to our uh, our images for just a second here. So this is that showing that this is a, a copper spud that's about seven inches long, the socketed spear point and 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 so forth. So there's about the the, the gold and copper and silver, and more artifacts. This is from the pioneer history of the Holland Purchase of Western New York in 1849. He said that on the farm of M. B. Crooks there was a tree that were turned up and several hundred pounds of axes were found. A blacksmith who was working up some axes that were found in Aurora told the author that most of them were without any steel, but that the iron was superior quality. <laughs> These are iron axe heads dug up uh, prior to 1849. So that's pretty interesting. This is, again, from that remains of rude specimens of earthenware, pieces of copper, and iron instruments of rude workmanship are plowed up in the area. Uh, and, of course, we know this, this, is, this is also from the book, so you can read this. is from Ether. They talked about uh, mighty heaps of earth to get the ore, the gold and the silver and the iron and the copper. So this is the Jaredites basically doing their mining stuff, and uh, and, and then more more examples of uh, iron axe heads and steel and so forth there in the on the left hand side. Now, I want to t- want to uh, to talk about this guy here and uh, this book. So this is one of the books I know that you have you brought in fact with you here to Utah. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. Uh, show me a copy of this book, and do you want to tell them a little bit about this? Because that's that's a, that's a, this guy was that picture. So this is a picture. Um, the the three people in the center in the picture. The one on the uh, let's see, it'd be the left. The older gentleman is um, Mallory. Arlington Mallory. Arlington yeah. Mallory, who was had been studying these things since 1920, been involved in them. The the young man in the center is uh, Bill Connor, who is the fellow shown in the picture there. Yeah, and I, the, he's, he's about twenty-three years, twenty-four years old at that point in time, and had yeah. just barely gotten his first job as the scientific writer for the Chillicothe Gazette. Yeah, <laughs> and that's how he got to know uh, Mallory. Uh-huh. And the other person is Mallory's grandson, I believe. Yeah. So here's a picture, and and it shows them. It, this book talks about Iron Age in America, uh, uh, Iron in America, really pre-Columbian. Yes. Uh, Mr. Mr. Mallory and Mr. Connor did not know the Book of Mormon or anything about it, and so they go through where and, they, and neither did Bill Connor. Yeah, Bill Connor. Bill Connor's not a member either. Yeah, they yeah. didn't know, and so their writings—they're looking for a source for the people that could have done it. They thought of the Norse. They thought of other kinds of peoples, the Vikings that may have come and done those things. So. So I find it interesting, and he talks about uh, a group of men called archaeometallurgists mm-hmm. who do who do research on on um, ancient metallurgy. 
I have not read any of their things, but I'm aware of them now. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I think they will have drafts of furnaces and other things. What's really impressive about, about this work by Bill Connor is that the, um, they have discovered over 60 iron-melting furnaces in the Chillicothe, Ohio area. Just in that area? Just in that area. Yeah. And the one that I really uh, got interested in was called uh, Blue Spruce. Mm -hmm. And it talks about, it links this with the Nephite peoples. There's a, oh, yeah. there's a mill Spruce there. Spruce Hill. Spruce Hill. Yeah, Spruce, Spruce Hill. Hill has it, yes. Yeah. Spruce Hill. And so, exactly. so there's a walls and monuments up above and this iron furnace down at the bottom. And they found, uh, they found slags and they found other things there, notably the bricks. So here's an artifact. You might, you might explain yes, it's I a high-temperature brick. Yeah, actually, this is one that, that, that was given to me by Bill Connor himself. Um, and so you can see that the, the – um, let me just kind of show you really quickly this. So essentially what this was is this, this, this came from a copper smelting furnace in, in, right around the Chillicothe, Ohio area here. Okay. Um, now, interestingly enough, let me just tell you a little bit more. Bill Connor has found, like you said, about 60 of these things. Um, they actually dug up about three or four of them to just verify things. But they're always found in mounds. And these are really fascinating because they, they have the, the, a, a mound, like it looks like a burial mound, but then they would find the slag around it. Or you know, the, and, and this this material here, this kind of slaggy stuff around it. And that's how they knew it was going to be a smelter instead of a burial mound. Anyway, so uh, so they, they dig these out. These were huge ovens. They were probably some of them were 15 feet wide by about uh, eight or nine feet wide, and kind of an oval shape. Mm -hmm. They found out that they were on in mounds because they would build them up so they could get above the tree level. So then they could have a venturi, basically that they they would have a uh, a set of stones, kind of flat stones, arranged so it would create a basically a, uh, a an air channel. You have to have air to, to go do in this. the bottom of the. Of the yeah, you've got of to have stone. air flowing up. So when you use the prevailing winds, and they would they would essentially make like a great big funnel that would cause pressure, and yep. that would and some of them had had tall chimneys, it had the same <laughs> yeah. net effect because you have to have air moving through it to get the temperature. Yeah, that's right, and and, and so the. These people were so advanced that they would actually build the mounds next to what they called he called it bog ore deposits. Basically, this is this is uh, ore. This is actually iron ore. They're in Ohio. That that is a result from bogs mm -hmm. that have that had long since dried out, um, probably centuries before the Nephites were even there. And then they would use that 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 uh, that 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 metal ore to basically then smelt it. Well, they would actually. Build this so that the that the opening going into the oven was actually facing towards the prevailing winds. Yeah, yeah. And so the wind would blow into it, so they didn't have to have bellows, and it'd blow into it and cause this to to heat up and get really massively hot. This is basically a brick. So they actually, uh, this is not this is not a stone. This is actually, uh, if you if this end of it here, you can't see it very well now, but uh, basically this is just a, a brick material. On the other end of it, though, on this side, you can see it's kind of uh, uh, broken up. This was the side that had the molten ore against it. Yeah. And you can actually see there's a little, there's a little uh, lip right there. I don't know if you can feel that or see yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can see actually, sure. that you can see it here, but, but when you pick it up, that, that copper has infused into this side of the brick. Yes, it has. And it's just as heavy. It just feels like a piece of metal almost. But it's not quite as heavy as solid metal. One of the things that interested me in this book was that um, 
So my question always was, well, what do you use for fire brick? What do you use to get this stuff so that it'll be able to heat up and the heat just won't go into the earth? And lo and behold, he said uh, in the book here that sandstone makes a great refractory material. So they just mm-hmm. they had plenty of sandstone around, yep. and they just used that for the refractory, and that's probably what that was at one time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the end of it. Could have been actually a sandstone material. And actually, if you take a look at the end of it, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but anyway, so this is a, this is an actual artifact from uh, the, the the Hopewell Mound Builder people because we know that they were the ones who built the mounds, and they and they and after they. Now this is an interesting thing. Why didn't why why did they um, not just leave them all open? Well. That, that, to me, is easy. This was a technology they hadn't shared with the Lamanites. <laughs> That's right. If the Lamanites are coming through and wipe us out, we're going to bury our technology so they don't know. Yeah, and, and, and what better way to, to, to do that than to make it look like a burial mound? Because the people back in those days, they didn't like to mess with the dead. So you just they would just leave that alone. Very you know? Jewish. Very yeah, Jewish. Yes, exactly. Very Jewish. And so they would do that. Now, this is another example of this. Okay, this is actually this was that. So, so Bill Connor took a group of us out when we were on a uh, on a tour one time okay. with Elder Hartman Rector Jr. and so forth. He yeah. was there with us, and he it was kind of funny because he told Bill Connor. He says, "I he says I, I I'm from Missouri, the Show Me State." He says, "I want you to show me something." And so he took us down to these places where he had pre- previously done some work, and he knew there was a couple of, of furnaces there down along the creek there, um, just outside of Chillicothe. And uh, so he said, so what you want to do is you want to take a stick and dig, dig around and kind of stuff forth and, and see if you can find something that has smelting on it. Now, let me show you really quickly what we're talking about here. This, he said, look for something that looks kind of like, by the way, that's Arlington Mallory. And it, just in case, if you look up Arlington Mallory, he was a, uh, he's a naval um, hero, actually. And then he was the one that found about the, 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 um, the Vikings up in Nova Scotia. And how did he find out the Vikings were there? Because he found slag, and he started hearing about the same kind of slag happening down in Ohio, so he came to check it out, which is when he met up with Bill Connor, the guy on the, the, the young man on the, le- on the right-hand side, who was uh, writing an article for him in the Chillicothe Gazette. This is how the two of them got together. Uh, this is Bill Connor about uh, three or four years ago. He's now um, had some bad health situations, and so he doesn't uh, come out anymore to see our, our group, but this is one when he did. So there's Bill. And this is some of the artifacts that he brought that came from these smelters. So this is a, a piece of stone that actually has the, you see the green material all over it. It looks like it's kind of a glass. It's because it is. It's what it is. Yeah. You can't take stone and melt it and get stone back. You get glass. You get glass back. This is, a, this is a, another stone. You can see that it's almost like a shellac over the, over the top of it. But if you get a closer view of it, you can see how this, uh, this outer covering was actually um, glass. Glass. Cracked. It's all cracked and glass. And you can see it coming off of here and other stones here. Um, additional information there showing that, again, this, this uh, high temperature glazing. This, by the way, does not happen in nature. If you find this, this is absolutely human caused. Yeah. So there's no question about this. Um, and again, th- these are actually two pieces of, and guess what they were? Sandstone. Sandstone? <laughs> These were sandstone, and they're actually melted together. If you can take a look right up in this area right here, there's actually um, where it's kind of the, that glass is actually pulled across the two pieces of sandstone and holding it together. So you, you can see it here better. This is You can see the sandstone right here, and you see the high temperature glazing over here. You see that? Yes. All right. I do see that. 
Now, this one is what we call the smoking gun of Book of Mormon geography right here. (laughs) Um, When I say smoking gun, because this one was one that was found, and actually this is in the book, um, the Exploring the Book of Mormon in America's Heartland book. It's right here. So if you want, if you if you have this book already, you can you can check it out here. But basically, this book um, has this. This was actually found in June on yeah, June thirtieth of two thousand and three. They were actually Bill Connor and several of his uh, of his friends and a couple of archaeological people. These archaeologists they refuse to do an archaeological dig on any of these sites. They will not do it. Bill has been for forty years trying to get them to do an archaeological dig. They say, well, we already know the answer. These people were not that advanced. These people were not doing smelting stuff. We already have a conclusion. So we already know that. So we already come to the conclusion. So, yeah. So we're not going to even look. But uh, but this is what he and his team found. They found at first, they just pulled out and it just looked like a rock, kind of like a big thing like this. Okay, here's a, here's a oh, gosh. Okay, by the way, by the way, this is, this is a hammer stone from the Adena civilization and this is how they were getting the metal out of these areas up in up in uh, the Kiwan Peninsula they had to beat the metal apart and so they use these giant like, this is greenstone I mean feel how heavy that is I mean is that oh that's that's heavy <laughs> that, that is one of the good densest dense stones. rock good dense rock and you can see how it's been kind of uh, you know, around the sides of it here and we're going to talk, talk to you a little bit more about that here is how they would attach this to a to a, a handle of some sort but anyway, so I wanted to tell you really quickly. So this one, basically, they pulled it out, and it had this extreme density. They're like, whoa, that's really heavy. That, that's not normal for a rock that size. And so they were kind of looking at it, and they're kind of trying to figure out it just looked like a rock. And so finally says, well, let's break the rock open and just see what's on the inside. <laughs> when they whacked it with a, with, a, with a small sledge, instead of being a rock, brothers and sisters, this was a – it was a – Iron axe head still sitting within its clay mold. mold. Yeah, it's in the mold. Iron in the mold. And it's, and it's not an axe head like you typically see in a European axe head, which is kind of a square shape, you know, with a wedge. Thing. This is looks like their original axe heads, like the axe heads that we have um, from the Hopewell Mound Builder people. So if you take a look at kind of the uh, the, the general um, shape of it and so forth, it's very similar. This is this is smaller than that is, but but you can see. There, the, the, the general kind of the, uh, the how it looks here in comparison, and it's amazing because these people made a mold. They pulled, they they poured liquid iron into the mold, and so you have a, an iron axe head. This came out of a mound in Chillicothe, Ohio, which was basically the land bountiful area of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and so, so to me. You know, when I look at these kinds of things, to me, this is smoking gun evidence. How do you discredit mm-hmm. evidence? Yeah, exactly. So you can actually see this, this, this brick right here is the one that you can see in the picture right there in the middle there. I don't know if you can see that right there, but the one right there in the middle there. <laughs> okay. Um, and then, and then uh, you have, this is some of the, his Bill Connor stuff. This is the front end of the brick. So if you want to see this, basically it's right there. That's what you're looking at right there against that area here. And then, of course, then you have this. that You actually can see the pore hole. Uh, once they figured out what it was, luckily the pore hole was not damaged. So this is actually on the, on the bottom side of here. That's where they poured the molten material in. So this was actually that the tip was down, and then they poured the, the, the metal on the inside of it there. 
Uh, but anyway, so that is just absolutely phenomenal evidence for the Book of Mormon. It's in the right time frame, in the right place, exactly where we would expect to find if the Book of Mormon is actually true. So let me get, show a couple of other things. I want to point out, um, I'm going to put that over there. That's a beast. Okay. <laughs> so this is how they would get, the, get a lot of that. This is called a hammerstone. This particular one is about about 14 pounds, I think, about right around in there. Okay. Um, you hand me that other one right there. Let me show you. So um, this is an actual um, uh, mate. This is a, a basically like a, a tomahawk, I guess. I don't know what, what else you call it, basically. But they, uh, it has the stone here. And then it's wrapped. This is all, all beaded and so forth, made by you know actual Native Americans and, uh, and, and this kind of thing. Well, anyway, so this is called um, hafting. And this is how they would haft a stone onto a uh, onto a, a handle or a stick of you know a piece of wood. So a lot of times, in order to make that hold on better, they would they would take, like for example, this one here. They would take this and they would groove a piece of really hard stone so they could actually wrap this around it. So you can kind of see how that would actually um, be the case right here. So they could wrap around that and then this, they they could do it this direction or they could do it this direction. Either way. Mm -hmm. Okay, be different ways of, of being able to do that. Okay, um, and then so you see that this is an, this is another hammer stone. The way you can tell the hammer stones from the cutting stones is their is their blade. So the blade down here um, is is sharper, and it comes down to a little bit smaller point. So this would be more like probably for for cutting down trees or or, or carving out canoes, that kind of stuff. This is basically for for breaking down other um, the, the, these metals. So they'd have, yeah, let's say yeah, these yeah. metals are like this. They would take this basically and then they'd hammer pieces off of that metal. Boom, boom, boom. They had to break off hunks of this. And so that's what they would use a bigger one. So let me tell you, whoever was using this one had to have like arms like Popeye the Sailor Man. Because <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you that this, this guy had to be a strong guy to hammer this thing all day long. Okay. Um, so there's that. Um, there, there are different kinds of axes. We've already talked about this. This is a, a three-quarters grooved axe. This is called a celt, a little bit smaller one here, um, and uh, so forth. So anyway, that's enough about that. Um, how would they actually attach knives? For example, this is, this is an example of a knife here. Um, which you can, can, can see this very well here, but uh, basically there's a knife, and the knife is made out of copper. And uh, so there's a, they use that, this is a, a piece of an antler, a deer antler, and then they just attach that to it. There's a little leather, leather case that you can put it in. And so you have this um, going on here with, a, with this knife. Now, this is another, another, another interesting one. Pass me that little, that little one right there. Okay. What do you think that is, Paul? Well, I've been fussing with it for a little bit here now. <laughs> it actually looks like it's got the groove around it for it's being. It's got a groove. Hefted. It's an axe. And, yeah. and but I kind of I kind of think it's copper. It, it evidently is not magnetic. Yeah. And and that feels an awful lot in density like this one does. This is a little lighter, but they're close. Yeah. So I, I think it might be copper. It's. Not wood, and it's not anything else. Copper axe head, possibly. Yeah. But you can, you can definitely see this. I mean, it, it's got the groove around it, just like you'd expect to see and most of these other uh, things here. Um, but that, but I, anyway, I'm going to have to try to find out a little bit more about what that's actually made out of. But yeah. this, 
just a, just a, a mystery here. So, well, take, um, take a file and scratch across it, and it'll tell you real yeah, fast. One, one spot there would be easy. Um, now, this one is really an interesting. This was actually dug up by um, some Amish farmers um, in Missouri, and uh, basically, it is a. Um, and you may may have already seen this one before, but this is a uh, a wristband. And, you can see that it actually has um, amazing. It's got, it's got engraving on it that's very fine and detailed. It's yeah. beautiful. But it's probably broken in half. Somebody apparently attempted to uh, to solder it back together. They've they've scratched off the the, the green stuff, and then there's little bits of uh, solder stuck on it. So um, before I, I before I was able to find it, they actually had done that. But the rest of it is pretty much pristine, and you can see on the inside and the outside. You can see everybody the. The, uh, the, hopefully you can see this here. Um, you can see some of the engraving going on there. Where did it come from? What's that? Where did it come from? Well, it came from Missouri. Uh, Missouri. The, the, okay. Basically, the central part of Missouri is where this was where the, these Amish folks are. I think they're actually called Mennonites there. They're not technically Amish. But anyway, so there's uh, there's some of that information. Okay, um, and then when it t comes down to um, that, so I was, I was back to this particular stone so there with Hartman Rector Jr. and and uh, and, and, and William Connor and uh, so the, the people were kind of digging around a little bit he says sometimes if you find something with some high temperature glazing on it that's what you're looking for well this one guy who was on our tour basically his name is Ron Rouse uh, he actually uh, picked he found this piece and he pulled it out and he goes well is this what you're talking about right here and uh, Bill Connor looked at him and said, "That's exactly what we're looking at. That's that's high temperature glazing on the surface of this, and it's a brick. You can see it's actually got this. This is how it was found. It was actually had surfaces like that and high temperature glazing on it. And so this was uh, found in 2010 by Ron Rouse at the Garrett site in Chillicothe, Ohio. And uh, so that's a little bit more uh, information. He actually donated that to me. He said, well, you'll be able to do more with that than, than I can, So, which is true. Okay, so then, um, now, uh, last last couple of uh, minutes here, we need to uh, cover just the last couple of things here. So, um, if we go to, uh, there's Iron Age America before Columbus. There's a little bit, this, these are from the pages of the Exploring the Book of Mormon America's Heartland, so you can actually get more information than what we just gave you. This is the uh, the smoking gun axe head here, and then this is actually the Turner Mound group. This is what they they feel like the the, the smelting furnace would have been like. Uh, all this can be found in exploring the Book of Mormon in America's Heartland. This is, by the way, the number one over the last number of years. That's become the number one best-selling book on the evidences of the Book of Mormon that's ever been published in the church. Oh, that's great! With about uh, over forty-five thousand copies have been have gone out. And then, uh, and so this is uh, they talked about uh, Mosiah here. Says they had breastplates and they were made of brass and copper and they were perfectly sound. This is what they found from the from the Jaredite civilization. And they brought swords and the hilts thereof have perished because they're probably made out of wood. And the blades thereof were cankered with rust. Now that's an interesting aspect. If they're cankered with rust, what kind of metal is this? Got to be iron. Got to be iron. That's right. So they weren't copper. These were iron or steel. And interestingly enough, uh, so people said, well, in Central America. Um, they have these uh, these wonderful things called the makahedal, which is essentially a wooden club with obsidian uh, rock or blades in them. In, in them, and they say, well, but these things were really sharp. As you can see, here's a guy that's you know cutting off the arms of somebody. So they said somebody could, said they could cut a horse's head off with one whack. Well, that's that's nice that they're really sharp, 
But how do those rust? <laughs> they don't. They, 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 they can't rust. They, they get dull. <laughs> there is no rusting going on with a wooden club with obsidian blades in it. So, uh, yeah. so this is not what we're talking about here. There's no mention of anything like this. Basically, they did say they had clubs. But they didn't say anything about any kind of you know uh, no. blades like no. that or anything like that in the Book of Mormon. So the big question is, is to you, which of these is a sword? Because I submit to you that the one on the left is a sword. <laughs> the other one, the Makahil, has nothing to do with the Book of Mormon, or and it doesn't require any smelting. Which brings us back to the last couple of things here. Uh, you've probably seen this before if you've been uh, watching our podcast. This is a uh, this is kind of a a, a, a wishful understanding of what the Laban sword might have looked like. It did have a, a the hilt was of pure gold, and the blade thereof was of fine steel. So uh, that would be pretty fine steel. Basically, this is probably stainless steel in this particular case. But uh, but nevertheless, that's what that sword of Laban would have looked like. More than likely, the other swords would have looked something more along the lines of this. So uh, if you take a look at this one, this is a, we, we call this Zelf sword. <laughs> Zelf sword, okay, I get it. And we have no idea what these look like because most of the time, if they were metal, if they were made out of iron, what's going to happen to these over Rusted a thousand away. years? Rusted away. They're just going to be a, a red stain in the dirt, basically. Yep. They're not going to maintain that. In fact, this one right here was just only made just a few years ago, and already you can see the rusting all over the blade. It's like my car. Rusts. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Like all of our cars, they eventually do that. But anyway, so this is just kind of an interesting looking sword. I think that, uh, um, you know, that, that might be a possibility of what they may have looked like. More than likely, they weren't this long. And we can show you now, archaeologically, what they actually did look like or what we think that they may have looked like. Okay, so, uh, and, and by the way, in the book, it basically goes back to um, the evidences for copper, silver, and iron, and swords. Uh, this is actually one that was found um, on page on page 176, and uh, on the lower left hand side it says the engravings of the silver plated disc and also the embossed silver plate uh, are herewith presented. These articles have been critically examined, and, be and beyond doubt that the copper bosses are absolutely plated and not simply overlaid with silver. Between the copper and the silver exists a connection such as it seems to me could only be produced by heat, and if it is admitted that these are genuine remains of the mound builders, <coughs> it must at the same time be admitted that they possess the difficult art of plating one metal upon another. And uh, so you can read more about that in the book. This is a guy that's actually found a sword, copper. This particular one is a copper sword. And uh, this is courtesy of Wayne May, and uh, and then... Uh, these are these are swords, basically scimitars and swords and uh, so forth that are found among the Hope Hopewell Mound Builder civilization, and uh, so let's just finish up here um, with uh, with the, the, the final thing here. And I, I know you got to go meet your missionary, uh, your, your, your missionary man. It's pretty awesome. Um, so a couple of last things here that I want to point out. When it comes down to artifacts, people say, "Well, gosh, you know, well, where's all the evidence for the artifacts?" People go, people all the time are saying, "Well." If, if it happened in the heartland of America, where's all the stuff? Well, they're only seeing that out of complete, um, well, really, I just say ignorance of the fact that there's so much out there. So in the museum, for example, there in, uh, in, in, in Indianapolis, I mean, how many? <laughs> <laughs> A huge number. 42,000 artifacts picked up off the ground. Yes. From one guy. One guy. And plus all the other ones that they already had. So, just to give you an idea here, this is the, this is the, there's books about this stuff. This is the this is collectors of the historic and prehistoric artifacts. 
And a couple of things I'm just going to show you here. This is uh, showing, by the way, each one of these, these are artifacts that they, that they show here. These are whole collections of artifacts that these people have, have, have put together here. And uh, let me see if I can get this out here. Wanted to point out uh, these here. For example, this, this one right here is very much like this one right there. So you can see the two of them. I don't know if you can see that very well or not, but anyway, so you can see this right here and that one. So you can see that this axe is basically just like the ones that you have in the books here. Um, let's see. Let's go to this one right here. This is an interesting one. This is an interesting kind of a face here. And uh, this is another one. This is a, a, a black stone that uh, I got also. And it has a face on it. It has a hole drilled in it. And if you can see that very well or not, but there's a, there's a bit of a hole in there. Um, here's some other examples of some other artifacts that we can show you here. So this is a this is a uh, uh, an axe, and look at how similar that is to this axe right here. So there's the actual axe, and there's the uh, and there's this, this other one. Okay, so you can kind of see the similarities there. And then uh, and then let's see. Here's this one here. These are plumb bobs, a whole series of plumb bobs. These people must have been doing a lot of building because they had plumb bobs like like literally hundreds of thousands of just plumb bobs, and not to mention all of the other kinds of, of things. To give you some idea of just the sheer magnitude of all this, and we've talked about this in the past, um, this is Ancient Monuments of the Mississippi Valley, which talks about some of the early uh, mounds and things that were there. This book here, if you want to get more information, this is called the Illustrated Encyclopedia of Native American Indian Mounds and Earthworks. This is the definitive work. Um, this has every state listed and it tells you where the archaeological sites are in each state. On page three of this, they asked about how many mounds are there. They said there's well over one million mound sites, and many of those sites have numerous mounds on them. So we're talking about literally tens of millions of mounds were built by this ancient civilization. Well, it, uh, matches, it matches the description of the Nephites. It was a huge civilization. Yes. Yeah, people go, people don't realize that there it was it was biggest civilization. In fact, it was bigger than almost any other civilization on the earth at the time. There's only a few of them that were even even rivaled it. Yeah, and Bill Connor points out that yes. the the metalworking uh, you just aren't going to make a little furnace for a small culture of people. You have to have people that smash the bogorn. You got, it's a big employment industry, and then the yep. materials are spread all around the culture. That's so exactly it, right. it it was a big deal. Yeah, and that and that just shows again. That, uh, that 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 the archaeological information here that we're that we're digging up is something that's not been known. It's been deliberately hidden. And in fact, if you want to know more about that, you got the ancient, you've got the lost civilizations of North America yeah, documentary yeah, yeah, about yeah. that. This is Ohio archaeology. Uh, this one is a great one here. This is Indian artifacts of the Midwest. And again, if you just when you just pop through this thing, you're just going to see literally just thousands upon thousands upon thousands of artifacts. Now, arrowheads are so common that they rarely even kind of even hang on to them anymore because they're just so they're just everywhere. But as you go through this, I mean, you just see all these artifacts here. And if you think that's a lot, then we have to go to this one, which is who's who in Indian relics. <laughs> okay, and this is back in 1960. Section three. And this is this is so far back that it's actually all in black and white. But look at look at this. This is individual collections. Every page has got somebody else's collection on it. Five. And it's just you know, just astounding. And another one. 
And there's another one yet. And there's, it turns out there are 16 <laughs> volumes. And they finally just stopped doing it. Yeah. But anyway, so I wanted to point out that. Let me see the volume, the next volume up over this one right that here. One, this yeah, is that was the next one. Okay, this, this, is the, this one here is when they started going into color. So as you go through this one, they have color images of all of this stuff. By the way, these winged banner stones like that, there's an actual one. Okay, they're not even sure what those exactly are for, but they have a hole in them. So you can see there's kind of a hole in that right there. And then it's, this is called the winged banner stone here. Um, this is from Kane County, Illinois. This particular one was. And then, and then if you go through, we're going to finish it up here. So these last couple of things here. Uh, by the way, these are these are called gorgets. Not sure what those are for, but there's uh, but here's some from my own personal collection here. And uh, so you can kind of see some of these uh, similarities here of the, some of these different uh, stones, like this one here and uh, these other ones. So, uh, but as you go through them, they have different uh, different shapes for some of those things. Um, let me see here. Let's see, this one was, uh, this says in, in, inscribed shells. So that shows that they were inscribing, which means they had to have the technology to be able to create a stylus and be, be able to scratch out stuff, which we'd need to have if you're gonna make gold plates, right? So you need to have styluses so we have the evidence for the styluses and so forth as well. And then last but not least, there's some just, just showing again. Uh, I, wish, I wish if you had time to actually go through and see this, but there's just literally just, just unbelievable. The amount of, uh, of, of collections and the sheer number of these things are, are telling us that, uh, that, the, that the Book of Mormon people were, in fact, advanced. There were a lot of them. And uh, so, um, so, Paul, before you leave... Um, I want to, uh, because you're a metallurgist and because you've taken the time to do this, we want to uh, give you a, a, a little uh, example here of, of what, what it feels like to be a Nephite. <laughs> so here we go. So we're going we're gonna to put on the, uh, the, the breastplate of righteousness on you, okay? You can put that baby on here. So put that on. We're not going to hook it all up and everything, but let's just put this here, okay? That was, well, we'll go ahead and put that in there. Okay, so there we go. Okay, so we're going to give you the, uh, the, the, the Helaman Warrior Award. I don't know, should we call it that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's great. That All is. right, and then, and then here is something else you can put on. Put those around your, okay. your, your waist there. All right, let me see. Body armor. You're the metallurgist, right? So. You betcha. All right, and you talked about uh, the first thing that when that when we got into the museum, they had those things to put on your ears. Yep. There you go. All right, so put that on your head first, though, so we can. Now he's going to probably mess his hair up, so we're going to leave this on until we finish. <laughs> but anyway, so then we put on the uh, the the the, uh, the helmet of righteousness and the breastplate and so forth. I mean, basically all these different things. We can put this up here, and uh, we won't hook that all the way up, but. Now you're all set to defend your home country. <laughs> there you go. Take there that, go. black part. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways, how does it feel to be Captain Moroni for, for a few minutes here? This is, this is great. <laughs> for, for those of you who didn't know, this is actually all armor that was made uh, by my friend Jody White. 
he was he was asked to do this for the uh, uh, Gilbert Arizona Temple dedication for their their youth celebration. They had uh, a young man who was Captain Morona come riding on a white horse uh, with the with the title <laughs> of Liberty, come, come riding in and so forth, the title of Liberty, and then he sat right there with uh, and President Monson was, and, and the horse actually bowed and everything. And so this was used in the temple ceremony. <laughs> The new celebration ceremony that would be. Okay. Well, listen, listen, Paul, I want to thank you and thanks everybody for joining us. I hope this has been informative. The bottom line is, brothers and sisters, the Book of Mormon is absolutely true. The evidence is, is with us. We have overwhelming evidence for the Book of Mormon. We have everything that was mentioned, every metal mentioned in the Book of Mormon in the right place, in the right time frame, with the right kinds of metal, metal materials and artifacts. And it's just absolutely astounding to see how uh, this all just fits in so beautifully with this beautiful book that we all love, the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon. Oh, Rod, thank you. This has been a treat, <laughs> and I, I'd like to add add my my add your testimony if you would. That would be I, awesome. I'd like to add what I have to say. I've studied this now for 47 years, and I know it's true, not because of not because of what some of all this yeah but because of my fasting and prayer and seeking the lord and so i'm really grateful to be able to be a part of this and uh thanks a lot rod my pleasure thank you my friend <laughs> so uh, so basically we want to uh, encourage everybody to keep uh, keep seeking further truth and, and light and knowledge a couple of things that we wanted to i wanted to bring up here uh, we have uh, Wayne May has uh, information on, on archaeological stuff. This is uh, the Book of Mormon Archaeology in North America, number one and number two. Uh, he's got some new ones out as, as well. Uh, the, the presentation I was just working from is called Book of Mormon Metallurgy. This is uh, number three in, our, in, my, in my series. Basically, this is a six-DVD set called Book of Mormon Evidence number two. It's about eight or nine hours. This is not for the faint of heart. It's for those who want to seek truth and they want to find out the physical evidences so they can defend this great gospel that we have and, the, and, the, and its crowning book, basically this foundational book, the Book of Mormon. So uh, thank you, everybody. I uh, hope you'll, uh, if you like this, if you enjoyed this, uh, hit like. Uh, for the first time ever in the history of the church, we have overwhelming evidence for the smelting and, the, and all the things that are talked about in the Book of Mormon. It's right here. Uh, we just want to be able to show you that information so you can tell your friends, neighbors, and, and uh, those who may be uh, not as strong in their faith as you are. Um, to basically to share with them this information. Thanks, everybody. Have a, have a great time, and we will see you next week. Happy birthday, Paul. And happy Thank birthday, you. Paul. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. You can find the new virtual expo at bookofmormonevidencestreaming.com. We advertise 60 new videos, but actually almost double that amount, so you'll have plenty of inspiration to carry you through the fall and into the holiday season. Don't miss out on more than 110 new videos now in our library. Special guest speakers are Glenn Beck, David Barton, and you'll have access for three whole months as well as receiving two bonuses that will offset your complete subscription cost. The first is The Destruction of Christ's Death, which is a two-hour streaming video by Rod Meldrum, which is a $20 value, as well as his new 40-page ebook called Prophecies and Promises. What did Joseph know? That's a $15 value. We're excited for you to join us.